Part Three, Chapter Nine of Bonaventure, a Prose Pastoral of Acadian Louisiana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bonaventure, a Prose Pastoral of Acadian Louisiana by George W. Cable. Part Three, Chapter Nine. Not blue eyes nor yellow hair. When the St. Pierres found themselves really left with only each other's faces to look into, and the unbounded world around them, it was the father who first spoke. "'Well, Claude, where you think better go?' There had been a long silent struggle in both men's minds, and now Claude heard with joy this question asked in English. To ask it in their old Acadian tongue would have meant retreat, this meant advance. And yet he knew his father yearned for Bayou des Acadiennes. Nay, not his father, only one large part of his father's nature, the old French home-loving part. What should Claude answer? Grand Point? Even for Saint-Pierre alone that was impossible. Can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? No, the thatched cabin stood there, stands there now, but be he happy or unhappy, no power can ever make Saint-Pierre small enough again to go back into that shell. Let it stand, the lair of one of whom you may have heard, who has retreated straight backward from Grand Point and from advancing enlightenment and order, the village drunkard, Chateauet. Claude's trouble, then, was not that his father's happiness beckoned in one direction and his in another, but that his father's was linked on behind his. Could the father endure the atmosphere demanded by the son's widening power? Could the second nature of lifetime habits bear the change? Of his higher spirit there was no doubt. Neither father nor son had any conception of happiness separate from noble aggrandizement. Nay, that is scant justice, far more than they knew, or than Saint-Pierre at least would have acknowledged. They had caught the spirit of Bonaventure, to call it by no higher name, and saw that the best life for self is to live the best possible for others. For all others Bonaventure would have insisted, but for Claude Saint-Pierre would have amended. They could not return to Grand Point. Where then should they go? Claude stood with his arms akimbo, looked into his father's face, tried to hide his perplexity under a smile, and then glanced at their little pile of effects. There lay their firearms, the same as ever, but the bundles in Madras handkerchiefs had given place to traveling bags, and instead of pots and pans here were books and instruments. What reply did these things make? New Orleans? the great city? Even Claude shrank from that thought. No, it was the name of quite a different place they spoke, a name that Claude's lips dared not speak, because for lo these months and months his heart had spoken it, spoken it at first in so soft a whisper that for a long time he had not known it was his heart he heard when something within uttered and re-uttered the place's name he would silently explain to himself it is because i am from home it is this unfixed camp life this life without my father without bonaventure that does it 
This is not love, of course, I know that, for in the first place I was in love once when I was fourteen, and it was not at all like this, and in the second place it would be hopeless presumption in me, muddy-booted vagabond that I am, and in the third place a burnt child dreads fire. And so it cannot be love. When papa and I are once more together, this unaccountable longing will cease." but instead of ceasing it had grown. The name of the place was still the only word the heart would venture, but it meant always one pair of eyes, one young face, one form, one voice. Still it was not love, oh no! Now and then the hospitality of some plantation-house near the camp was offered to the engineers, and sometimes, just to prove that this thing was not love, he would accept such an invitation, and even meet a pretty maiden or two, and ask them for music and song, for which he had well-nigh a passion, and talk enough to answer their questions and conjectures about a surveyor's life, etc., but when he got back to camp, matters within his breast were rather worse than better. He had then tried staying in camp, but without benefit. Nothing cured, everything aggravated. And yet he knew so perfectly well that he was not in love, that just to realize the knowledge, one evening when his father was a dazed march ahead, and he was having a pleasant chat with the chief, no one else nigh, and they were dawdling away its closing hour with pipes, metaphysics, psychology, and like trifles, which Claude, of course, knew all about. Claude told him of this singular and amusing case of haunting fantasy in his own experience. His hearer had shown even more amusement than he, and had gone on smiling every now and then afterward, with a significance that at length drove Claude to bed disgusted with him, and still more with himself. There had been one offsetting comfort, an unintentional implication had somehow slipped in between his words, that the haunting fantasy had blue eyes and yellow hair. "'All right,' the angry youth had muttered, tossing on his iron bed. "'Let him think so.' And then he had tossed again, and said below his breath, "'It is not, love, it is not. But I must never answer its call. If I do, love is what it will be. My father, my father, would that I could give my whole heart to thee, as thou givest all to me.' God has written on every side of our nature— on the mind, on the soul, yes, and in our very flesh, the interdict forbidding love to have any one direction only, under penalty of being forever dwarfed. This Claude vaguely felt, but lacking the clear thought, he could only cry, Oh, is it, is it selfishness for one's heart just to be hungry and thirsty? And now here sat his father on all their worldly goods, his rifle between his knees, waiting for his son's choice, and ready to make it his own. And here stood the son, free of foot to follow that voice which was calling to-day louder than ever before, but feeling assured that to follow it meant love without hope for him, and for his dear father, the pain of yielding up the larger share of his son's heart, as if love were subject to arithmetic, 
yielding it to one who, thought Claude, cared less for both of them than for one tress of her black hair, one lash of her dark eyes. While he still pondered, the father spoke. "'Claude, I tell you,' his face lighted up with courage and ambition, "'we better go Mervillianville.' Claude's heart leaped, but he kept his countenance. "'Vermilionville? No, papa, you will not like Vermilionville.' "'Yes, I will like him. Tis good place. Bonaventure come from yonder. When I was leave Grand Point, Bonaventure, he cry, you know, like I told you. He tell Sidonie he bring an education at Grand Point to make Grand Point more better, but now education drive best men way from Grand Point.' And then he say, Saint Pierre, maybe you go Mervillianville. Dat make me glad. He say, dat way he say, what I rob Peter, I pay John. Where we go if we don't go Mervillianville? Saint Martinville, Opelousa, New Iberia. Too many Creole yonder for me. Can't go to city. City too big to live in. Why you don't like Mervillianville? You write me letter when you was yonder. You like him first class. Claude let silence speak consent. He stooped and began to load himself with their joint property. He had had in his life several sorts of trouble of mind, but only just now at twenty was he making the acquaintance of his conscience. Vermilionville was the call that had been sounding within him all these months, and Marguerite was the haunting fantasy. End of Part 3 Chapter 9